of the many parables that Jesus told during his earthly ministry, I think it's the parable of the prodigal son that is still perhaps the most famous. And it's inspired many artists. This painting behind me on the screen is by Rembrandt called The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's a parable found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. And it's a simple story, but it remains one of the most powerful demonstrations of the love and grace of God in the whole of Scripture. And most of us here are probably familiar with the story. A man has two sons, and the younger son wants his share of inheritance before his father dies to do with as he chooses. And the father agrees to this hurtful request, and the younger son sets off for a faraway country where he squanders every penny he has in reckless living. And after he's lost everything, the younger son ends up hiring himself out as a pig feeder to try and provide for himself. And eventually he comes to his senses and decides to head back to his father and ask for forgiveness and a place among his father's servants. But while he's still a long way off, his father sees him and he's filled with compassion for him and he runs to meet him. He flings his arms around his younger son. He kisses him. He doesn't let the son come out with this rehearsed apology. And instead, he holds a lavish banquet, celebrating the return of his lost son. And through that story, I think Jesus describes so vividly God's startling love, his willingness to forgive those who come to their senses and see what they're missing in a relationship with a loving Heavenly Father. It's a rightly famous story, I think. But it's been pointed out in the past by commentators of that story that in fact there isn't just one lost son in Jesus' parable. There are two. And Jesus devotes almost half of the parable to the elder son. I think this rather stern man standing on the right-hand side of the picture. And it is not a flattering portrait of this elder brother. Because when he discovers that his brother has returned home, he doesn't celebrate. He doesn't share in his father's happiness. Instead, he stays outside of the party and he sulks. Let me just read from Luke 15, verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that's where Jesus' parable ends. We don't know what happens next. We don't know if this older brother remains outside of the party, sulking, refusing to celebrate that his younger brother has come home. Or if the father prevails on him to see what a precious gift it is that this younger son has returned. And if this brother goes in and celebrates with him. We're not told how the story ends. And in a similar way, when we come to Jonah chapter 4 this morning, 
we're not told how the story ends. This book ends with a question. It ends on a cliffhanger in some ways. And I want to suggest this morning that there are striking similarities between the older brother in Jesus' parable and the prophet Jonah in chapter 4 here. Chapter 4, verse 11 is the end of this book and it is God questioning Jonah concerning Nineveh. Verse 11, Should I not be concerned about that great city? And just as in Jesus' parable, we're not told how Jonah answered that question. Instead, it's left hanging in the air until it reaches us this morning. See, if you've been here the last few weeks, we've seen throughout this series that God has important lessons he wants to teach this reluctant prophet, Jonah. And they're lessons God always has to teach his people. He had to teach his people in the Old Testament, Israel, and he had to teach his people today in the church including this community of Christians at Magdalen Road. There are many lessons God teaches Jonah that he wants us to learn also. So in chapter 1, a few weeks ago, the lesson God was teaching us was basically the foolishness, the futility of trying to run away from God, but also the amazing way that God chooses to reveal himself to and through his people in spite of our foolishness and sin. And then last week in chapter 2, God taught Jonah a profound lesson about his grace, that it's miraculous, it is life-transforming. It's rooted in his holiness and his love. And now, in chapters 3 and 4, God wants to ask us perhaps the most probing question in the whole book. What is the state of your heart this morning? How do you really feel about the God of the Bible? When you're not standing in a church singing words of praise written by others, what does your heart say about your relationship with the living God? See, God knows the answer to that question. Even if we can hide it from others, even hide it from ourselves, in some ways. But he asks us that question anyway so we can actually reflect on the state of our heart. So we can see if we are drifting into the same attitude as the prophet Jonah in chapter 4. And so if necessary, that we will recognize the need we have to experience the grace of God in a fresh and powerful way that will transform us and make us men and women who delight in God and who do not resent him as Jonah does here. You see, God's desire for each and every person here this morning is that we love him. We love our neighbour and that we become more and more like his son, Jesus. That is God's desire for Jonah and that affects the way he relates to Jonah. And it's God's desire for us this morning. And it affects the way he relates to us. God wants to make you more like Jesus. And sometimes he will have hard lessons to teach us to achieve that goal. So, turning to chapters 3 and 4 then. 
think it was the great American film and theatre director Orson Welles who once observed, if you want a happy ending, that depends, of course, on when you stop your story. What sort of ending do we get here in the book of Jonah? It's worth speculating for a moment. What if the book of Jonah ended at chapter 2? What would be left with the image of Jonah, the repentant sinner, celebrating the saving grace of God in his life, standing on a seashore, wiping off fish vomit, but grateful to God for the salvation he's experienced. That's a pretty good ending to the book of Jonah. Or perhaps a more satisfying ending is the end of chapter 3. Because if we did that, if we ended the book here, Jonah will be hailed in the pages of the Old Testament as the most successful prophet ever in the history of Israel. A prophet who brought an entire pagan city to repentance and faith in the God of Israel. And that was a phenomenal achievement. No other prophet got close to that achievement as Jonah. I mean, I want to spend most of our time in chapter 4 this morning, but let's just look briefly at those astonishing events in chapter 3. Because by verse 1 of chapter 3, we learn that God's restoration of Jonah is complete. His word comes to Jonah a second time. And Jonah has been forgiven by God for running away in chapter 1. And in verse 2, God says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And verse 3, finally, Jonah gets the message. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, verse 3, and went to Nineveh. Again, we might be quick to celebrate at this point. Jonah has learnt his lesson. He's a changed man. The storm changed him. His experience in the belly of that fish changed him. And finally, he's the sort of obedient and faithful prophet we could all admire. And then what happens when Jonah arrives in Nineveh? It's nothing short of a miracle. And we can't miss that this morning. Because across the ancient world, the Assyrians generally, the city of Nineveh in particular, were famous for their violence and their cruelty. A little bit after the events of Jonah, the prophet Nahum in the Old Testament described Nineveh as woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. We need to see the city of Nineveh, the people of Nineveh. They were not good people. If you were here a few weeks ago, you would have seen James take us through a few reliefs that show graphically the violence and bloodshed of the Assyrians in battle. And yet, here the people of Nineveh are, responding to the message of Jonah in repentance and faith. See, this is a miracle. An astonishing response to Jonah's message. And it's the whole city that responds, from the least in the city to the greatest, verses 7 to 9. See, again, these people, they don't know much about Jonah's God, but they know enough to believe Jonah's message and call urgently on God for mercy. And it's an amazing picture of repentance here. In the New Testament, Jesus takes the people of Nineveh and quotes them as one of the most powerful examples in human history of a right response to God. That's in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus says, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. 
Jesus tells the people of his generation, look at Nineveh, learn from them, respond to the message of God as they did. This is the miraculous grace of God at work in Nineveh. Now, it's a sad fact of history that the repentance of Nineveh recorded here is relatively short-lived. At the time when Jonah visited Nineveh, it's very likely they had a weak king. They were being threatened by their enemies. There were plenty of bad omens around, including a solar eclipse, people have discovered. So, in a sense, they were receptive to this message of judgment. They believed that they were in trouble and they acted to save themselves. Within a generation, that picture was very different. They had a stronger king and they were back to their violent ways. So that by 612 BC, God did finally judge Nineveh and destroy it, never to be rebuilt again. But... Jonah 3 tells us about this generation of Ninevites. And they did respond to God's message of judgment by repenting of their sin. And verse 10, God had compassion on them. Let me read verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. And as we prepare to leave chapter 3, we just need to see here in passing What this tells us about the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a personal God. He's not this sort of impassive president of the immortals sitting in heaven and playing games with people, deciding who gets judged and who doesn't. No, he is a personal God and the decisions we make affect the way he treats us. Our choices in life matter to this God. And if we respond to him in faith, in repentance, then God will have mercy on us. He had mercy on Nineveh. That was a remarkable miracle from Jonah's generation. And no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, if you will respond to the personal God, he will show mercy. It's an amazing picture of God in Jonah chapter 3. And I've already said, if the book ended there, it would be a fantastic ending to the book. Jonah, the most successful prophet in the Old Testament, in that what he prophesied didn't come to pass. Again, Jonah succeeded where Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, almost every other prophet in Israel or Judah failed See, when Jonah warned of God's judgment, the people believed him and they responded in faith. Israel and Judah never did that. That's why they were sent into exile in the Old Testament. So Jonah, at the end of chapter 3, stands here as a remarkable prophet, a remarkable instrument in God's hands. But the book of Jonah doesn't end at chapter 3, verse 10. Instead of that happy ending, We have chapter 4 as well. And it's in that chapter that we see Jonah's real heart. And it is not a pretty sight. Jonah 4, verses 1 to 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? 
That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? See, we need to slow down here and take stock of what Jonah has just said. Because in these words, Jonah reveals his heart and it is ugly. See, without these exchanges with God in chapter 4, we would come away with a completely different view of this prophet. In chapter 3, Jonah looks the part. He looks every inch the faithful prophet. And even better from a human point of view, he's, he's an inspiring story of second chances, isn't he? I mean, yes, he messed up in chapter 1, but now, look at him. He's great. He's, he's giving the message of God. God is using him. This is an inspiring story for any believer to read. Which of us wouldn't admire Jonah if the book ended in chapter 3? But instead of a Jonah we admire we're left with a petulant, sulking prophet who is deeply resentful of the grace of God if it's not directed towards him. Just who is this prophet who speaks so boldly before God? Well, again, I want to suggest this morning, Jonah is us. If we are not actively humbling ourselves before God in his grace and his sovereignty, we will share these attitudes that Jonah expresses here. If we're not constantly on our guard to truly listen to God's word to us and to let him change us, then we are like this prophet in chapter 4. See, Jonah is disgusted by God's grace towards Nineveh. And what stands behind that disgust is what stands behind every sin we ever commit. Because put simply, Jonah wants to be God. Jonah doesn't like God's way of being God when he personally is not benefiting from it. Again, back in chapter 2 last week, in the belly of the fish, Jonah celebrated God's grace. But in a sense, it is very easy to do that when the good things of God are being lavished on us. The challenge here in Jonah 4 is will we trust God and even delight in God when we don't understand what it is he's doing? Will we trust God and delight in God when it seems as if all his goodness and mercy is being poured out on other people and not on us. See, that's the question Jesus posed so powerfully through his parable of the prodigal son in the person of the elder brother. That a true understanding of God's grace will lead us to rejoice in him even when we are not the direct beneficiaries of that grace. The father in that parable wanted his elder son to recognize that and God wants Jonah to recognize that. Verse 4. Have you any right 
to be angry. But let's be honest here. This attitude of deep resentment towards God, it is very hard to detect sometimes. We're very good at hiding it. It can remain hidden in outward demonstrations of faith in God, in church-going respectability, in even in sacrificial service of God. We can actually hide our true feelings about God from everyone, except from God himself. After all, Jonah looked the part. The elder brother in Jesus' parable served his father faithfully. But Jonah 4 shows us that ultimately God isn't impressed by outward shows of obedience and faithfulness. God is concerned with what is going on in our hearts. God doesn't just want our obedience. He wants us. Every single part of us. And sin in the Bible, it's not ultimately a matter of things we do or don't do. It is a problem of the heart. And a vital part of God's grace is he wants to transform those hearts. To remove our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh that love him. That delight in him. That love our neighbour. That will trust in him even when we might not like what it is he is doing in our lives or in our world. And that is a high calling. Let's be honest, that is not something that comes easily or naturally to any of us. But I believe it's the calling God makes of us through the prophet Jonah here. And the way Jonah expressed his desire to be God was in his desire to exclude Nineveh from the grace of God. Jonah wants to limit God's grace to himself and to his own people. And that is a huge struggle for every individual Christian and for every church in this world. See, Jonah is acting like a huge warning sign to us all here. A constant danger that faces every church is the tendency to turn in on ourselves. The only things that God is doing, he's doing here. The only things that are worth Noticing are the things God is doing in my life. And it expresses itself in so many ways. Perhaps we snipe at other churches. We criticize them. Perhaps we just show complete disinterest in what God is doing around this world. That's all very well, we say, but what about me? What's he going to do in my life? When's he going to bless me? We need to see Jonah's sin here and guard against it in our hearts. God's grace is not limited to our lives, to this church. God gets to choose who to lavish his grace on. We don't call those shots. Again in verse 3 in chapter 4, Jonah very grumpily quotes a bit of Exodus. Chapter 34, it's God's revelation of himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. Let me just read it for us from Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. 
Those were precious words for Israelites. But Jonah turns them here into an accusation against God. But see, Jonah forgot what God also told Moses. A chapter earlier in Exodus 33, verse 19. God speaks, I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. We don't call the shots. Jonah wants to, but praise be to God, he didn't have that right. And neither do we this morning. That right belongs to God and God alone. And his character is one of compassion and mercy. We need to entrust the ways of our world into God's hands and to celebrate when he demonstrates that compassion and mercy, even in startling ways. Because if Jonah just looked up from his grumblings in these verses... Surely he would have seen what glorious news it was that God could forgive a city of Nineveh just as he could forgive a prophet who turned and ran from him. And in fact, Jonah's complaint in verse 2 unwittingly paves the way for God's revelation of himself that takes up the rest of the chapter. Because Jonah reveals his heart here, but also God reveals his heart to Jonah. And it is patient and loving towards Jonah. In verses 4 to 9, God treats Jonah with the same grace and compassion that Jonah is disgusted by in verses 1 to 3. Again, if God was a God the way Jonah wanted him to be in relation to Nineveh, he would have struck Jonah dead in an instant. But actually, that grace that Jonah hates about God, it's his only hope as he stands here grumbling against that same God. God demonstrates amazing patience towards Jonah in chapter 4 here. But that patience doesn't mean that God is all sweetness and light with Jonah. I hope we saw that in the chapter. God has hard lessons to teach Jonah here. Lessons designed to jolt him and bring him to his senses. In verse 6 God sends a vine to provide Jonah with comfort from the sun as he sulkily waits for Nineveh to be destroyed. But then, verse 7, God sends a worm to destroy that vine. Worse than that, verse 8, God sends a scorching east wind and then the sun blazes on Jonah's head to the point where he wants to die. The patience of God is a funny thing sometimes. He has hard lessons for us. And I entitled this sermon, Hard Lessons from the School of Grace. And you might be thinking, reading this chapter, that another way of describing the School of Grace is the School of Hard Knocks. Because that's what God's doing here, isn't it? He's knocking Jonah. He's trying to expose Jonah's foolishness and selfishness here. And I don't want to be glib about God's dealings with us. But I do need to be faithful to the testimony of Scripture and to the experience of believers throughout the centuries that often to do a good work in us, 
often to reveal his character in a deeper way, God has hard lessons for us. Maybe he takes away things that we have grown to love. Maybe he exposes our weakness in ways that just force us back to him. We have nowhere else to turn. Sometimes the things that God uses to demonstrate his character are lessons we would never have chosen for ourselves. Jonah must have felt like that. What with vines and worms and scorching east winds. But the result of all that is at least the hope that Jonah will come to his senses. At least the hope that he'll see the foolishness of his resentfulness towards the God of grace. Those hard lessons God has for his people, they're not a sign of his cruelty, but actually a sign of his love for us. Because God loved Jonah too much to leave him sulking and bitter in verse 4. And God loves us too much to leave us as we are. When there's so much more of him to experience and when we need to repent of so many attitudes that will poison our hearts and our relationship with him. Jonah wouldn't have liked the lessons God had for him. But they were demonstrations of God's patience towards him. And God was determined that Jonah should see the truth about him. And so, we come to the end of the book of Jonah this morning. What are we going to make of it? Well, actually, that's pretty much the question that the writer leaves us with at the end of chapter 4. What are we going to make of the God of Jonah? What are we going to make of a God so sovereign over storms and fish and worms? What are we going to make of a God who chooses to lavish mercy on people we despise, we reject? How will we respond to this God? That's the final word Jonah leaves us with. What is the state of your heart this morning? Verse 11, should I not be concerned about that great city of Nineveh? We don't know how Jonah answered that question, but we can answer that question as we read this book. The question shifts from Jonah onto us. What's the state of your heart? Have you slowly, even imperceptibly, begun to resent the grace of God shown to other people? Do you think you can fake it with God? That on the basis of your outward obedience, your religious observance, your acts of service, that God will be satisfied with that? Do you hate it when God lavishes good things on other people and he doesn't seem to lavish good things on you? Can you only ever praise God when you are a personal beneficiary of his grace at any given time? 
See, the lessons God had to teach Jonah are lessons we all need to learn and to go on learning as we relate to God as fallen people in a fallen world. We need to see here, God is not ultimately interested in our outward obedience. God wants our hearts. He wants us. And because he created us, And because if you're a Christian here this morning, he has rescued you from sin and death, then actually he is entitled to your heart. He is entitled to all of you. So how can we avoid falling into the trap of Jonah? I'd love to tell you, just work harder try harder, but that completely goes against what this book tells us. Jonah was obedient in chapter 3, but his heart still was cold towards God. The elder brother in Jesus' parable was, was a faithful servant, but still in his heart he resented his father. So it's not about us redoubling our efforts to be faithful, to be good Christians. The only way we can avoid the trap Jonah falls into is by constantly depending on God and asking him to transform our hearts. The Puritan writer Richard Sibbs puts that, I think, very helpfully for us. He writes... And when we feel ourselves cold in affection and duty, the best way is to warm ourselves at this fire of his love and mercy in giving himself for us. Our disposition must be changed. We must be new creatures. They seek for heaven in hell that seek for spiritual love in an unchanged heart. See what Sibs is saying there. We need God to change our hearts. And what Jonah shows us is that we need to ask God to do that. We need to ask God to open our eyes to the warmth of his mercy and his love, to warm ourselves by the fire. It isn't in us naturally to be faithful and loving servants. If we go away from Jonah thinking, I'd better avoid Jonah's traps and work harder, we have completely missed the point. What we need is God to give us new hearts. Hearts of flesh that beat for him. That warm at his fire when all we feel in ourselves is cold and sin and selfishness. But look at how God treats Jonah in chapter 4. He doesn't strike him down. He's patient with him. He keeps asking questions of Jonah. And that is our hope this morning. The patience and grace of a loving God who invites us to the fire of his love and mercy to warm ourselves, to be changed people. And then he will get the glory and we will receive joy like we have never experienced before. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, 
describes his longing to know Jesus Christ, to be changed by the power of Jesus' resurrection. And he says something I love. Not that I've already obtained this, he says, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He doesn't press on to earn it. He just presses on to take hold of what Jesus is already holding out to him. A relationship of love and dependence with the God of mercy. A heart that is transformed by God's Spirit. And lives that then reflect his glory and his grace to a watching world. Will you ask God to change your heart? And will you go on asking as you live for him?